0: It's time for Talent Talk Radio Show, brought to you by People G2. company founded in 2001, People G2 is dedicated to helping clients with their people-related decisions by giving them access to the best human capital, due diligence, and background checks on prospective candidates, business partners, tenants, and more. And now, on with the show, and our host, CEO of People G2, Chris Dyer. Hey, Chris.
1: Good afternoon, and thank you for joining me. And my name is Chris Dyer, and I'll be your host for the next hour. In case you're tuning in for the first time, the Talent Talk radio show features a wide range of guests who care about talent or are just really talented themselves. On this show, we talk about talent in both those ways. First as it relates to success and uncovering the secrets of really talented people. And second, we also talk about talent in relation to human resources and HR leaders and how they find the best candidates today. Hopefully that makes sense and how that works. The word talent here has a couple different meanings in the business world, and this show really looks to explore these two areas. My guests uh, include CEOs, entrepreneurs, HR executives from all types of industries. When I'm out at networking events and conferences, I have the privilege of meeting these inspiring leaders all the time. So I created this forum to allow you to listen in on our dialogue and learn some practical advice that will hopefully impact your own career in a positive way. Before I get to my guests today, Dave Burkus and Gary Goltz, I want to thank those of you tuning in live today, but don't forget you can submit your questions to our guests via Twitter. Just tweet your questions uh, to at 2 and use the hashtag talent My producer, Mike will feed me the best questions and we'll try to work them into the show. Don't forget you can, uh, Listen to the show via our podcast on iTunes, as well as subscribe to have that weekly show sent to you. If you're already listening to the podcast, thank you very much. With that said, let's get uh, today's show started. My first guest is Dave Burkus. I'll be speaking with Gary Goltz in the second half of the show. So Dave, thank you for being on the show.
0: Hey, Chris. Well, it's a great day in Los Angeles, and I'm certainly glad to be here.
1: Great. Oh, I I should have said awesome if we're saying Los Angeles, right? Awesome. (laughs) So tell us about yourself and some of the great companies that you're involved with. Well, I'm known as a
0: super angel investor, but I'm also a uh, speaker and author, and so I have been since 1993 investing in young entrepreneurial companies, serving on the boards in most cases, helping to grow them. And have done very well over the years, and in fact, that's one of the things that uh, people hire me to speak about is my internal rate of return, which since uh, 1981 goes back to 97% per year annualized. Try duplicating
1: that. Yeah, <laughs> that's, so, a, that's a pretty amazing number. I'm not sure if people, in case they didn't hear that, basically every every time you've invested 90% 97% of the time, those dollars have come back to you as an ROI, right? Even better than that. Uh, the means is
0: if uh, one investment returns a 1,000 times the amount of money you put in, that investment, of course, skews everything else. And I did have one of those. Right, and a right. few others that were very large as well. But the average uh, young startup uh, probably lasts an average, I hate to tell everybody this, of about two years. And so it is a risky business to invest in these young startups. Mm-hmm. Problem being that uh, I've invested in 108 at this point. And at uh, this time now, after 20 years of investing, uh, I've been on more than 40 boards. Today, I'm on 10, chairman of six of those, and four more nonprofits, which makes 14 boards. So I've been very actively involved in helping to manage some of these small startup, early stage companies. And you have to define early stage from pre-revenue all the way through about 100 million in revenue. So early stage can be anything you want to describe it as.
1: Well, any any time anyone tells me I'm too busy, I'm just going to refer them over to your resume because. That's quite a bit. I mean, you've either come up with a fantastic time management system or you've cloned yourself, because being ahead of six boards and and involved in all those different investments, that's quite remarkable.
0: Well, I've been kind of lucky, and because of all of these uh, experiences, I've been able to write books and speak from experience. And so I learned as an editor of my college newspaper to write on the first draft. And uh, that may sound like nothing important to most people, but if you can write a book In about 26 hours of actual sitting down and writing, that's an amazing thing. So I've written 13 books, and they're easy to write because they're all just uh, telling people about the experiences of these entrepreneurs and all the things that happen or some of the things that happen in these companies over time and finding, divining, and telling the lessons that come as a result.
1: Oh, when you've got great material, I'm sure it just flows right out of you. I mean, I think people know you in maybe so many different ways, uh, some, as you mentioned, as a speaker, as an author, a consultant, as an investor. you know Out of those roles, or maybe ones that I haven't mentioned, what, what's your favorite and why?
0: Well, I'm a ham at uh, the bottom of it all, and so I love to speak. And I am paid to speak around the world on various subjects, and I enjoy the experience.
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: in the last year or so, I have been to places like uh, New Zealand for a week, where I was booked into one venue after another about a month ago for a full week. And uh, to places like uh, Bangkok and Thailand, and uh, speaking in uh, places in Canada, United States, um, Berlin, just lots and lots of opportunities. And I meet angel investors and entrepreneurs in each of these, and they, too, tell me their stories. So it's a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a lot of what we've seen even with this radio show. People just telling us their stories comes up with so much more information, material, and, and and wonderful examples for other people that, you know, you couldn't possibly do on your own. Even with your incredible resume, I'm sure those other stories, those other things that you're hearing are just as impactful when you're, you repeat them on the next conference. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So to kind of dial into one of these areas that you're known for, let's maybe talk about the investor, uh, you know, how big of a factor is the talent within the company when you're considering and investing you now? And one way to put this is, are you betting on the horse or are you betting on the jockey here?
0: And that is the way to phrase the question. So thank you for that, Chris. It turns out that uh, it took 20 years to figure this out. So it isn't something you could get right away. But I think most of my contemporaries now agree that uh, it is the jockey. Because so many times we'll see an idea, a shiny nickel, that we think is going to be the world-changing idea that turns out to be nothing at all like the company that rolls out in the end. And so it is the person behind the idea the jockey that makes every difference. And the team that that jockey builds is the important part of making the continuity happen out of that idea as well. So I would always say it's the jockey at this point. And I would say that no business plan that I've ever seen, and I'm probably wrong by a small percentage, has ever survived the first six months in the marketplace.
1: Just in case any of our listeners at home or podcast listeners are wondering if we're talking about horse racing or not, (laughs) The the jockey here is really the the team, the personnel. It could be the founder. It could be the executive team, the CEO. What Dave here is talking about is betting on the the person or the team of people, the talent inside an organization to drive home those goals and to become a success. And I think what Dave's saying is that that is more important than that that great idea, that shiny nickel uh, for those organizations to be correct. Am I summarizing that? It
0: sure is, and I used to invest in the idea, and I've turned out in the last two or three years to flip that entirely and invest on the entrepreneur, spend more time coaching the entrepreneur, and find that there is an idea there, but it really ends up being quite a different one than the entrepreneur proposed.
1: So, you know, over time, do you think that you've changed as a leader, maybe as these organizations have grown and and you've grown as a person? Maybe you can kind of, if the answer is yes, maybe you can kind of describe some of those changes for us.
0: Well, what's interesting to me is that I have always been a, a leader by consensus, and you know that in a company when there's an emergency, that's not a possibility, and the leader must uh, act decisively. But in most cases, it turns out that if you have a management team that you work with directly, and in my case as a board member, even as a board chairman, uh, the only way to get something done is by bringing people up to speed in a consensus mode before making the final decision, unless, of course, it's an emergency, in which case everything changes.
1: So is that something you've always done, or is that something you had to learn to do early on? I'd go back and say that I've always done that.
0: Uh, Mm -hmm. My first business, I began at the age of 15. Uh, It was a record company, a record manufacturing company, that uh, I expanded as I went through college. It put me through college. At the end of my college years, I was making about $300,000 a year in gross revenue from this with no employees. Everybody was an independent contractor. And then I began hiring and I grew that company to about 52 employees. I took it public shortly after college, and I sold it after 19 years, or nine years after college. And it turns out that uh, that company taught me, an awful lot of experience in that company taught me an awful lot about management. And from that sale, I began immediately a computer company in the software business. I began to specialize soon with hotel software, and after a few more years, dominated the hotel software industry with about 16% of the world's automated hotels, 22% of the United States hotels, and in that company, grew that company to about 232 employees. These employees were in 29 offices around the world. Uh, there were offices in many countries, and I had a chance to travel, but with that kind of management, you cannot be anything but a consensus manager. Mm-hmm. Surely, somebody who is able to uh, give the vision and then supervise the way in which other people carry out that vision. There's just no other way to do it.
1: Well, that sounds like an, an incredible way to model. Anyone could model themselves after is to use that, that level of consensus management. Uh, but to Maybe try to ask the question a little bit differently, because I, I love to get this answer when it exists. Um, is you know, Was there something you had to learn along the way that wasn't a natural ability? It wasn't something you just did because it felt right, but something you identified in yourself that, hey, I need to do this, I need to learn it, and then it later maybe became a part of what made you successful.
0: Something like that you can identify? Sure, you know, even a charismatic individual has to be able to subordinate himself or herself to uh, the whole of the organization. And what I learned early on was two things. Uh, number one, using the words help me, often enough that people felt empowered enough to be able to express themselves without fear. And second, asking the empowered employee uh, to do something by telling them what and why, but not necessarily how.
1: And mm-hmm. if you'll
0: think about that for a second. If you don't tell them how, you aren't demeaning them because you're not acting constantly like the supervising teacher. If you're telling them what and giving the reason why, they normally will find the reasons to do and the way to do and the how sense. And you'll find that these empowered employees are far, far more far more ready to give up their time and their energy to the company if you don't act like their immediate supervisor and controlling trainer.
1: Sure, sure. Many times if you have the right, if you have good talent in your organization and you've done a good job with hiring, you've done a good job with culture, I think you're right that if you allow them that how, if you allow them that freedom to go in, it's almost autonomy to allow them that space to go and figure out how to solve that problem and bring in their other coworkers and, and uh, people who they who they look up to to solve that problem. You now give them something that money can never give them, title can never give them. It's just that opportunity to solve that problem themselves and to really make a big impact on the company. So I think you raise up a very, very good point. So I think what you were saying was, sometimes you need to tone your own self down. You're a charismatic person, but you need to know how to take a step back and allow those other people to take that center stage when the time is right.
0: Well, no kidding. And if you look at it from their point of view, the what's in it for me" view,
1: Mm-hmm. Almost
0: everybody wants to feel like they are the person that is getting the job done. And they would hate to think that they're nothing more than your arms and legs. Mm-hmm. So, for you to empower somebody and not tell them how to do the job, it's as much as saying, you do it the best way and I'll support you.
1: Well, we're talking about empowerment here and, and giving people those tools. Kind of leads right into the next question is, you know, does loving what you do help you drive your success?
0: Oh, without a question. I think that, uh, For me, especially for all these years, that record company that I first described, I ran for 19 years, and that was strictly an act of passion. And the computer company was uh, another 16 years, and uh, there was one where every day going to work was almost every day going to work, a great day, a day of having a good time. And uh, it was an experience, not only a learning experience, perhaps a little bit of a teaching one, too. And I think that the enthusiasm that you have for the job is more important than perhaps almost anything else that you bring in the way of either skills or uh, management capabilities.
1: So we talked about some of the very specific things that you've you mentioned with being a leader by consensus and empowering people. Do you think there's any other specific skills or techniques on a very kind of practical level that really contributes to your success? But, you know, you had, again, we're looking for, did you have to work on it over time?
0: I think, for me, I was
1: lucky that it kind of came naturally,
0: that mm-hmm. uh, I wasn't going to teach everybody everything all the time. The one thing I did have to do is I was the only salesman in the computer company during the early years, and I had to record my sales presentation, and the salespeople listened to it several times or more each until they had the same pitch down themselves and then could make their own variant once they understood it. But once they had that down, I allowed them the freedom to do what they had to do. And in fact, the greatest growth from the company came after I enabled them to make those changes and do what they wanted to do themselves.
1: Well, that's a fantastic tip right there. I mean, I just wrote down people could use today. I mean, taping whether it's yourself or your who you consider to be your best salesperson, and then turn around and make it their own. Uh, that's something that every single company can do. It doesn't cost any money. Um, if they have a any kind of smartphone, they could just record it right there on their computer or anything else. So that's a fantastic tip that I think any business, any CEO or entrepreneur could take home right now to really help with their sales team. Good. So you know, as a business leader, you know, was there any person or event that maybe had the greatest impact on your leadership development?
0: I guess I have to think about that for a few minutes before I uh, can answer that for sure. For a person, I can use an example that will surprise everybody. It's my dad, that's what many people say, but it's in the opposite reason that you think. My dad was uh, a owner of a furniture store, and he took no chances. And so my brother and I, both of whom learned to take risks that were far in excess of anything that he had ever done, were reacting to my father's lack of risk-taking over the years. That was a model for me in a very strange, negative kind of way. It led me to believe that life is a pendulum. Every other generation in a family usually compensates for the things they find that they uh, would rather have had in the previous generation. Mm. And here's a good example. So my brother and I took risks. We were both very successful in what we did. And in fact, we both talked often about several times when my dad had a chance to do something when he didn't that we would have done. Uh, One great example, in 1955, Walt Disney Company came to my dad and said, would you like to take the franchise for the general store in a new place that we're building in Anaheim? And it's going to cost you $56,000 in 1955 dollars. And dad said, that's way too much money, and Anaheim is far too far from Los Angeles, and no, there's no way. So the person who finally took the general store franchise in Disneyland probably did very well over time. But it's just an example, and it's one that my brother and I cite every once in a while.
1: Yeah, I can think uh, very, very specifically to some people in my life, or leaders in my life, bosses that I had, who I may have personally liked, but they're leadership style was so opposite of what I felt was the right thing to do. I learned so much by watching them do it in the way in which I thought was wrong and then really be able to see those results and then later on have kind of those concrete proofs in my own head, examples to give other people because I had seen it, I knew it was wrong, I could see the results and how they failed. Your dad may have given you that as as well and the pendulum is a very, very good example there that in some ways you and your brother really took that risk because he didn't and you 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 recognized, obviously you were very, probably very, very smart, probably smarter than that your parents appreciated when you were kids, probably recognized some of those things that maybe others wouldn't very early on where he could have taken risks and really had the reward. And there's another one
0: now that you're thinking about it. My brother had his architectural office about a mile down the street on Santa Monica Boulevard from the record company. And I would go down to visit him every once in a while and I would walk into his offices And he probably had 40 or 50 architects working for him and everybody would be laughing and smiling and there would be all kinds of uh, cartoons and family pictures in the uh, cubicles and everybody was looking like they were having a great time and it taught me that people work better even if you think that they're distracted by all of these conversations that they're having they work better when they're having a good time than they ever would when you expect them to be heads down doing the job and nothing else It taught me from his experience that uh, leadership doesn't necessarily mean having to clamp down and try and be most efficient. Often it means motivating somebody with a vision and letting them decide how to do it, but at the same time, letting them have a good time doing it if they can.
1: Yeah, and I think you could make that point across the board for any job. Some people might make the argument that somebody putting one widget into another widget, that may be one scenario. Certainly in an architecture firm where creativity is key, and coming up with these wonderful solutions to things you need people to be happy you need people to be uh really in a positive mode and really looking to to find answers instead of in a negative where they might be willing just to give up easily if they're not happy and they're not uh, not feeling good about what they're doing so it sounds like your brother was really onto something there with yep. some very unique company culture
0: so I sold that computer company in 1990, and I still see many of the employees that were mine back in 1990. 1990s, so and what has it been, 23 years? Mm-hmm. And uh, these people at the annual trade show, where I still attend after 33 years, the annual trade show still come up to me and say it was the best job they ever had, they never had more fun, and they never thought that they learned more or had more respect for each other than at any other job they've had since. And wow. it does to say that some of these small things that we talk about today turn out to be the most empowering things that you can possibly do as a manager.
1: Sounds like the next uh, idea for your book, Things I Learned from My Family. <laughs> Thank you. I just need more ideas. <laughs> well, speaking of books, uh, we love this question. It's become our recent uh, show favorite. What, uh, what books are you reading right now?
0: Well, I have to confess that uh, the one that I am just finishing now is called The Entrepreneurial Bible, The Venture Capital not necessarily one that everybody wants to go out and read. It's by Andrew Romans. Uh, I have a very small part in the book, just less than a page, but I was shocked to find out that uh, Andrew had more of a view of the inside of venture capital and angel investing than anybody I think I've ever talked to. And I found myself nodding uh, my head, affirmatively, every time I would read another item that he printed in the book. Mm -hmm. So for those that are interested in how to obtain venture and angel financing, as well as those that are in the business, I would recommend that book. But I go back to my favorite two books over all time, and Marketing and Positioning, which are obviously Crossing the Chasm and Inside the Tornado by Jeffrey Moore.
1: Those are those are all great books. And I know there's another one. Uh, I think it's You Can You Can Negotiate Anything. That's another one. It's, uh-huh. it's been on your top favorites you've ever told it me. It has to be my
0: favorite book, come to think of it, by Herb. Yeah. It was written in 1981. It's yeah. a very short book. Uh, Herb has passed away, but uh, he wrote another book afterwards that wasn't as good as this one. It's just a very short, fast read on how to negotiate. And you yep. and I know that in management, almost every day, we're negotiating. We're negotiating in our family environment, we're negotiating in our work environment. And it's certainly, uh, that book certainly taught me, he you has know, 16 different ways in which he teaches negotiation. Yep. And I read it, I read that same book about every other year to remind myself what those 16 are and some of the examples he gives.
1: It really is a wonderful book, and certainly I don't agree with 100% of the the things that he suggests in there, but it brings forth a certain level of excitement and passion and understanding about how wonderful the negotiation can be and how important it is, and it really kind of turned it into more of a a passion thing instead of a tactical thing for me. Very much. Reading that book. Glad you
0: read that book, too. Yeah. And uh, another one might be The Goal by Goldratt. The goal is uh, a manufacturing resource planning book that uh, is statistical control of manufacturing. doesn't sound like anything you and I would ordinarily want to read. It's told in a story form, and I found that uh, the ways in which he teaches and the things that he teaches were absolutely as beneficial for a software company, therefore for almost any company, as it was for the manufacturing environment he was trying to teach into. So the goal by Goldbreath.
1: A lot of great suggestions people can add to their... uh... They're book lists. I know I've got a pile of books on the side yeah. of my, uh, my, by my dresser every night that I'm supposed to be reading and I try to get through. But uh, usually when I show up to any sort of the meetings, especially the ones where you and I uh, end up sitting at together, I come home with a list longer than I'm already supposed to have read. But, That's our uh, job.
0: Just to keep yeah. you working.
1: Okay. <laughs> so, you know, let's talk about the, the talent that people have a little more as far as the, their personnel. You know, what kind of advice would you have for our listeners looking to really develop the talent that they currently have? You know, how, how do you get the most out of each person?
0: That's a good one. Um, the way that I've done it is by having others who have seen that movie before talk to those people in my company. And so in each of the companies that I've had and in the companies that I helped develop today, we usually end up having not just a governance board, a board of directors, but also an advisory board. And we bring advisors from the industry who have been there before, in some cases gone as far as taking their companies public, but who have seen the various things that these managers who I'm dealing with now haven't seen in the past, putting them together and uh, giving the advisors a small amount of stock, and at the same time, let them be heard. And it turns out to be a great teaching experience by letting these people tell stories as well as kind of help guide so I would a little, say advisory. a little
1: bit of the idea of a peer learning then through story, story learning, peer learning. I mean, there's a lot of different ways you could categorize it there, but it's instead of lecturing, and letting them have that experience to really work with someone who's been there and seen there, seen it and done it. Is that right?
0: You bet. Mm-hmm.
1: So you know, you can have great people you have in your company, but then you have to get them to be creative, I and mean, sometimes that can be a challenge for companies. Um, sometimes I think people. Uh, falsely put people in groups, those who are creative and those that aren't, and I think uh, really it comes down to how do you brainstorm effectively with the team? Do you have any suggestions on that?
0: Well, as a uh, corporate board member and as a chairman of the board, often that is one of the jobs that I take upon myself. Brainstorming at least once a year in a strategic planning session is a very important job for a board because we bring the executives from the company into the meeting. We bring these advisors that I just spoke about into the meeting. At the same time, has turnout to discuss for typically a half a day, much longer than that, people kind of burn out, the things that the company is doing are doing today and how that will change over time because of the environment and how we want it to change over time because of our goals and our visions. It's an empowering exercise for everybody. The outside people get a chance to talk about what they see in the environment outside the company and especially for competition. And at the end of that four- or five-hour session, we end up writing up, a strategy, or several strategies, and goals, and finally, tactics to make those happen. And that's an empowering way to make everybody understand that those four or five hours were well spent.
1: Well, it certainly sounds like a, a wonderful way to get people to, to think and to talk and to get those ideas out there. That's a very important thing that the companies need to do. I think sometimes they feel almost hampered. They can't do it, and then they don't put it into their processes, and it really, really hurts them. So uh, the last question I have today for, for you, Dave, the speaker, the author, the consultant, and the investor, is how do people get a hold of you if they want to learn more?
0: Now, that's the toughest question of all. <laughs> First of all, I have a weekly blog and a weekly email. Which I'm is very, very good, I might add. Anybody in the list that I can, and the weekly email and blog can be subscribed to at berkus.com, dot com or berkonomics, B-E-R-K-O-Nomics.com. Either way, you'll get an email every Tuesday morning that will be another one of uh, the ideas that uh, we've been talking about today and more. And it gives you a chance to have a whole library full of these ideas. And then, of course, there are the books. So uh, they're available at Berkus.com, and they're available at Amazon and everywhere else as well. And I'll be happy to sign any copies that are ordered directly from Berkus.com.
1: Wonderful. Well, Dave, thank you so much for being our guest today on the Talent Talk radio show. It was a pleasure having you. Okay, Chris. Thanks. Keep the good weather.